Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast. We have Jake Styles here back on the cast with us, so he's going to be filling in for Seth this week. We don't have Seth, but we have me and Richard. So Jake's going to be co-hosting me and Richard, and we have Rolly on, and we're going to have a limited extravaganza for this cast. So, Richard, we don't have Seth, but we have Jake. So. We, we, we've replaced Seth with two awesome people, so sorry, yeah. Seth. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll have Seth back next week, uh, but Jake is going to be on here. Roy's going to be on here. We're going to be doing a lot of limited stuff, uh, but before we get into that, we had a fish mail, and so in lieu of Seth not being here, I will read his response to the fish mail. Uh, so the fish mail was, and it was emailed directly to you, right, Richard? That's correct. Yeah, so I have four Elish Norn Judge promos. Purchased them when they were five fifty a piece. Should I hold on to them long term or sell in the short term? Do I need to worry about reprints of Elish Norn the same way I would other reprints? Reason I ask is the Judge promo is not only a foil, but also in Phyrexian writing. Assume this is the only card in Phyrexian writing, and even if not, with reprints. I would imagine this is to be the only Phyrexian Elish Norn writing version of the card. Would love your thoughts as it was quite an investment on my behalf. All right, so I'm going to read Seth's uh, response to this fish mail, uh, and then I'll chime in on my own. The Phyrexian language Elish Norn, in my opinion, is the coolest pimpish judge foil ever printed. While it is likely that Elish Norn is reprinted, along with the rest of the Praetors in Modern Masters 2015, just having more Elish Nords in circulation will not hurt, hurt the Judge promo at all. I just watched other financial type people literally beg on Twitter for someone to trade slash sell him a copy for months before finally getting one. This card will have a huge demand from Cube slash EDH and the supply is quite small and neither of these variables seem likely to change in the near future. It's hard to imagine Elish Norn falling out of favor with the Cube EDH crowd and other printing of the Phyrexian language version is extremely unlikely. I wouldn't worry a, a bit about holding them for the long term. If you need some fast cash, you could probably sell now for a respectable profit, maybe 100 per copy. But if not, wait it out and enjoy owning such a sweet card. So there's Seth's uh, response. Uh, Richard, did you want to chime in at all on this? Yeah, I agree with Seth. This is the pimpest of cards, right? You, you cannot get any more pimp than this, right? It's very limited uh, in circulation, and it is extremely unique, right? It's Phyrexian language. They're not going to have another card like this. And, you know, I don't typically pimp up my decks, but this is a card I would go get. Yeah. Right? So I, I don't see this dropping in value. You know, Elish Norn is actually a legitimately good card as well. So you're going to use it in EDH. You're going to use it in Cube. You're going to use it in Legacy sometimes, right? So I don't see this card going down. It will just keep going up and up. Even if they reprint Elish Norn into the ground, they're not going to reprint Phyrexian language Elish Norn. So I would be on the hold and keep unless you need the cash for some reason. Right. Uh, so the only, uh, to chime in here, the only other card that I can actually think of that mirrors this kind of card, uh, maybe you'll agree with me, Richard, is the Player Rewards uh, Full Art Cryptic Command, right? Uh, I think this is a step above that, right? Because you have other full art cards. You don't have other weird language that aren't really languages cards, right? Right. Well, what I'm saying is they don't have the Magic Player Rewards program anymore. So basically, it, like the Elish Norn, this is a card, Elish Norn especially, and I, I think you're right, it's a step up above that. They're probably not going to reprint this anytime soon. So I think holding them, I mean, 
basically virtually for a long time could, I mean, it only really could go up. So yeah, like Richard said, if you need the cash, sell them. You're, it's probably going to be a lot more than what you initially invested in for anyway. So that's always good. But again, there's nothing really compelling. If I had them compelling me to sell them. So you can hold them. If you need the cash, like Richard said, you, you can sell them either way. It's totally fine. So there's that. And we wanted to get the fish mail out of the way. Uh, so let's just get right down to it. So hello, Jake. Hello, Roly. Good to have you on the cast. Hey, good to be back. Hey, this is Jake. Draft numbers were released on mtggoldfish.com. Oh, before we go into this, uh, you can follow myself uh, at BullSnapBull, Richard at mtggoldfish.com, and Jake also at JakeStylesMTG. So just to get that out of the way. Roly, the numbers were printed, but before we get into the numbers, Jake, uh, Roly, you know, the draft environment has been out for a little while now. What do you guys, what's your general vibe about this draft environment? We'll start with you, Jake. I'm kind of feeling what a lot of other people I've heard have been saying, which is coming off of cons, which was three color, and it feels like a very normal format. Like, it doesn't feel very strong one way or another because we're coming off of such an interesting, I love multicolor um, draft environment. So we're coming onto a very normal two color set. There's a lot of just, you know, pick the good cards kind of <laughs> picks that come up in draft. So I, I haven't really felt too strongly one way about it. Um, I, in general, I'm, I'm okay with it. I like it. I, I wouldn't say that I love it. I haven't, you know, fallen in love with the format. Rolly? Yeah. I can't remember which one of you guys it was that, um, uh, that described it as uh, as the worst set since AVR, uh, since Avacyn Restored. I think it probably was Seth. And that's, that was exactly the way that I described it uh, when, I, when I first kind of saw the set fully spoiled and maybe, uh, maybe after my first draft. It just felt pretty miserable to me. Um, I've come back off that view a little bit uh, since then and, uh, and think it, it's probably similar to, to just a bad core set. It's, it's one of those core sets possibly with, uh, with Titans that, uh, that you, you still have these cards that, that when they come down, it's, um, uh, it's an oops, I win situation. You know, you can, uh, you can have been winning the game um, for, uh, for, for the majority of, uh, of the, the length of the game. Down comes Citadel Siege, and, uh, and that's the end of it. it. It has a very similar sort of feel to how Miracles played out, that, um, uh, that there's just this... this randomness element to it that, that doesn't feel good. And it may also be that, that it's coming off what will be remembered as, as one of the best limited sets of all time uh, in, uh, in Triple Cans. So that, that may also be tempering kind of uh, the, the community view on the set. Very good. So we had you on before, Roly, and we did this. We, we kind of delved into the numbers a bit for the previous limited format. Do you want to just take us very you know, a very, a very general feel about these uh, numbers that were posted on the site? Sure. Um, so just a quick reminder, the numbers come uh, from uh, MTGO replays. Uh, so effectively, um, we've written a, uh, a bot that, uh, that watches replays in a very similar way to how bots can auto-trade with you on, uh, on Magic Online. Uh, it records all the, uh, the information that's going on, on the screen. 
and nothing that you can't see on the screen. So there are, are some limitations uh, around what you can't see, which is mostly what's in certain people's hands, um, but everything else we, uh, we get to collate and, and put together. So it's broken mostly into, into two groups. Um, uh, one is data about the, the, the meta in general, you know, how many different types of, of archetypes there are, what's the average number of turns of a game, uh, win on the play and the draw, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, uh, then the card statistics. So effectively, how often do you win the game statistically after, after playing a certain card? So in the, in the overall, um, meta statistics, we see a, a fairly healthy format. Um, it's, uh, it, it's not grossly uh, skewed one way or the other. So, uh, so you don't see a, a color like, um, uh, white from the, the last core set just being absolutely dominant. Um, although I think the, the numbers reflect what, uh, what people in the community have, have generally accepted that red is the, uh, the strongest color. Uh, we see that with a, with a win percentage of 52. Um, so effectively what that means is if we see red in your deck, um, during a replay, then you've got a, a baseline chance of 52% uh, to win the game. Compare that to uh, uh, to a colour like um, blue, which is the lowest on the on the raw win percentage, which is 48.7%. Um, and in, in magic terms, that's a that's a significant difference, right? So the the difference between uh, a 52% win rate and a and a 48.7% win rate is um, a, is a significant um, difference. Very good. So those are just some general, uh, you know, rollies taking us into the the numbers uh, again. So twenty five thousand games were recorded, right? Yeah. So um, uh, it's probably closer to uh, to about sixty thousand games are recorded, and then um, then it goes through a filtering process. Uh, so uh, so we've set up some some quality measures to make sure that we get. All of the relevant data. So, right. uh, so I like to see all of the games of a match uh, conclude. I want all of the text. I want it to agree. You know, the the winner. Um, you know, from the pop-up box and the text box are the same. That kind of thing to to make sure that uh, uh, that the data is high quality. Right, and just so uh, in those games, once they go through the filter, there's a uh, you know continuity uh, in the exactly. data. Right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we're looking at the numbers, and um, we we were talking a lot about this last time. So th these numbers are not the end-all, be-all, right? And I I'm going to let Jake uh, go into this because this is more of Jake's area than my own. Uh, I, I know that I've mentioned on podcasts I'm not very good at uh, the limited scene. So um, Jake uh, is filling in for, for Seth. So I know you had a few questions to shoot at Rolly about these numbers. I I'm going to give the floor to you, Jake. Okay, so first of all, um, as Rolly already has told us, this is not just a straightforward card evaluation. The higher percentage games won equals the better card. That's, that's not how it works. So the first reason, which uh, for the reason that Rolly already mentioned, is we cannot see cards in hand. So if there's a card that's stuck in your handle game and you can't cast it, either because of its high mana cost or it's in a color that you don't have mana for or it's not an appropriate time in the game to cast it, we will never know that. So, for example, the top card, the top common, and I believe the top card as well, 
uh, for win percentage only, is Magmatic Chasm, which is a one in the red sorcery that says creatures without flying can't block this turn. So what that card does is you wait until your board is big enough, you cast this, and then you attack for lethal. You very rarely cast this when you're not attacking for lethal. If you're behind in the game and you're not attacking, you're not casting this card. So we have a, a pretty big, not really, a sampling bias to only see this card cast in games that you're winning, which is why the win percentage is so high. So that's, that's the first thing to keep in mind, is the sampling bias of when a card is stuck in your hand versus when it's actually cost, cast. The second thing is, um, it's, it's kind of a similar sampling bias, is certain cards you're more likely to cast when you're losing. So tap creatures effects, fog effects, um, casting a card that has morph, that has a good unmorph ability, if you just cast it face up without morphing it and then unmorphing it, that indicates that you're low on mana and that you're probably getting beaten down by your opponent and you're just scrambling for a blocker. So that's going to have a lower win percentage. So in addition to cards that are situational, you also have other cards that, you know, because of their cost or because they're primarily defensive cards, they'll generally have lower win percentage ratings. The, the takeaway from all this is you generally want to compare cards like for like. So Magmatic Chasm, the card that I would most want to compare that to is another card like Press the Advantage or Volcanic Rush and say, whenever I'm attacking for lethal or trying to, which of these cards is best for me? Or whenever I'm comparing a 3-mana creature, I don't want to compare it to a 7-mana creature because that 7-mana creature is going to be stuck in people's hand a lot. And whenever you get to 7-mana and cast that creature, that means you survived that long. So obviously the 7-mana creature is going to have a higher win percentage because it means you survive to 7-mana, and generally 7-mana creatures are better than 2-mana or 3-mana creatures. That just that makes sense. So I'd rather compare like to like whenever I'm evaluating these cards. Uh, Roly, did I miss anything big there or anything else you want to add about just evaluating the card win percentages? No, I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, the less conditional the card, the closer you're going to come to uh, to effectively having a, a ranking or a, or a raw card evaluation with the percentage. So creatures, for instance, have have very few requirements in general for them to be cast. You can you can cast them if you've got the mana. So so for that class of cards, the uh, the win percentage is is going to to most closely correlate to to the card's inherent strength. For, for cards that are highly conditional, uh, you can think of combining the the win percentage uh, when they are played, so something like the the falter effect, um, with the win percentage of um, of a natural mulligan. So when you um, uh, when you mulligan, for instance, in, in this format, your win percentage goes from a from a baseline, let's say 50%, um, down to 37.5% on average. So you're losing a lot of equity just by losing a card. Um, so, so really, you've got to think about it in those two ways. If the card is stuck in your hand, uh, then it's effectively taking a mulligan, which is, you know, losing you um, a good 13% off your uh, off your base win rate. That's a really interesting way to think about that. I like that. Uh, Richard, so- do you, do you want to chime in here real quick? I haven't played a lot of VGK Limited, but I actually just noticed something very interesting about the data. So I wanted to pick your your brains on it. Um, so for the record, I was a salty one. I compared sealed uh, DTK to AVR DTK. Oh, but, but I haven't played DTK Limited due to time constraints, not because I'm incredibly salty, but <laughs> I still haven't played that much. But the interesting thing I saw about this data is play or draw win percentage is pretty close to 50%. So it's 50 per- 50.4% on the play, 
and 49.6% on the draw. Right? So we're, we're almost at parity. We're, you know, we're about, uh, you know, 1% off. But the thing you notice is when you mulligan to six, your chance of winning on the draw are significantly higher. 42% versus 33%. And it, it's, you know, higher as you go down to five cards, four cards, three cards. So is there an argument to be on the draw to kind of, you know, hedge the mulligan to six? Uh, what do you guys feel in your experience playing this format? Great question. Rolly, do you want to take yeah. this or do you want me to? Yeah, I'll take this one because I think um, I think it's it's really interesting. So the the first observation is um, uh, is that being on the play or being on the draw is is potentially less of an impact than than what people may intuitively believe it is. So the the accepted wisdom is that uh, that you should always um, uh, play first in a, in a limited environment. What the data shows, and, and it's pretty consistent across most formats, um, is that it's not one of the biggest decisions um, that, uh, that that you're going to make in your game of Magic. Um, your mulligan decision, for instance, is much more significant uh, in terms of its impact to uh, to your win percentage. But the way it works out is that, that effectively uh, what you're looking at is the... Uh, the times in which you do mulligan to, to six, uh, you are much better off being on the uh, on the play. However, that's balanced by the the win percentage that you get when both players keep at seven. So if you are keeping your opening seven, then it's much better to be on the uh, on the play. So so that fifty versus um, forty nine win percentage play fifty point four forty nine point six. Versus play on the draw, that's cumulative. So that's taking into account all of the times that you mulligan. But mulliganing is an even. Mulliganing is is much worse for the player on the uh, on the play, and it it kind of evens out that um, uh, that that extra uh, card that you get in a in a mulligan on the draw outweighs the uh, the effect of the initiative that uh, that the player on the play has. So it's not an indication that uh, that you should be hedging and and draw first. It is an indication that uh, that you're not losing any equity if you choose to play, so uh, or choose to draw. So if your if your deck is leaning that way, if you think that you've got a slightly more controlling deck, you know that uh, that that you're leaning towards wanting to draw, but you're you're afraid of kind of losing equity by not uh, playing first. Then, then I think what this data shows you is that, that you don't need to be afraid of that. If if you think that your your deck naturally or natively wants to draw, then I, then you should probably go ahead and draw. Also, um, if I could just add a small point here, um, go ahead. This, this player draw, this is only for the first game of a match, right, Rolly? Correct. Yeah. So this, so this is not determined randomly. You can't look at this and say, oh, 50.4 is pretty close to 49.6. It's a toss up. And the reason for that is those the people who are on the play in this in, in this analysis are all people who chose to be on the play or their opponent chose for them to be on the play. And the draw is people who chose to be on the draw or their opponent chose for them to be on the draw. And most of the time it's people choosing to be on the play. I, I looked at another thing that you wrote about this analysis and it showed about 94% of people choose to play first. So 
in general, you want to be on the play because even if you're a more controlling deck, it takes away being on the play from your opponent, and it's a zero-sum game. And if you're a control, that doesn't mean your opponent's also a control. It, and you should really only choose to be on the draw in that very first game if you believe that your opponent, looking at their deck and looking at your deck, would also want to be on the draw. Because you want to take away whatever your opponent wants to do, basically, in addition to also getting your preferred playstyle, whether you need that extra card or you need that extra turn, basically. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a very good point. Uh, before, you know, I, I, I give the floor back to you, Jake. I know you had a few more questions. Um, so the departed Seth uh, from the podcast here wanted to throw in a question here. This is a question for you, Roy. How was Dash and Rebound counted? Yeah, so this um, uh, this was a, a really interesting observation from um, uh, from the community uh, around well, how do we how do we count these cards? Effectively, it's looking at every time that that it's cast. So when it's dashed, it's cast. So we're counting it each time that it's that's dashed. When uh, when a card rebounds, it's cast. So it, it's cast twice. So in the data at the moment, we're we're counting both of those um, for for each time that that they get cast. I think for rebound, there's a there's a very good argument for saying, well, don't count the the second time it comes around. I think for dash, uh, going forward, we we probably like to look at doing something similar to to what we do for morphs, which is break out the two um, uh, the two options. So have have a uh, a card win percentage for when a, a dash card is is cast normally, and then a, a win percentage when it's when it's dashed out. Um, I, I think that would probably be a, a more meaningful um, way of, uh, of representing the data. Yeah. So I'll pass that on to Seth. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he'll listen. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, a good thing because that that's a little weird uh, when it's coming up in the, in the numbers. I know dash – or rebound, rather, being countered twice might throw off some numbers. But I think uh, you're on the right track and how to determine, you know, the, the best course of action to count those cards. I'm going to give the floor back to Jake. I know he had a few more questions to ask about all these numbers. So uh, before I get into the other questions that I had, I also wanted to comment on the, uh, the dash uh, thing that you were just talking about. So I agree that it would, be, it would be good to separate it out by, say, you know, reckless imp dash and reckless imp cast. But um, something interesting to note is would that mean that if I, ca- if I dash reckless imp let's say, seven times in my game, and then there's another game that I, I dash Reckless Imp one time, and then I lose, that I'm going to have seven... Let's say I won in the first game. I'm going to have seven observations that say dash Reckless Imp results in a win, and one observation that says dash Reckless Imp results in a loss. That is correct, yeah. So, basically, it, it's going to tend to overvalue dash cards, and that might be fine, because we'll say we'll be comparing dash cards to other dash cards instead of dash cards to normal creatures, but it should, in general, overvalue dash cards because the longer you survive, the more times that you're able to dash a card, basically. So games where you survive longer, you'll get more observations in with the dash creatures, if that makes any sense. You will. Uh, from, from, the, from the data's perspective, um, it's, it's as if, let, let's say you just dash it seven times and, and win the game, it's as if you drew that same card every single turn and played it every single turn for, for the entire game. So while it is going to slightly overvalue dash cards, there is an opportunity cost in dashing it out every time. It means that you're not casting other spells. So if it's a bad thing to do for you to, to continually 
dash this card out, then that's going to reflect in the in the win percentage numbers. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really good point. That actually makes it sound like yeah, that intuition makes it sound like it's actually not going to give it as big of an advantage as I would have first thought. Yeah, it, it's funny how how it often works out that uh, that our intuition about these things um, doesn't doesn't work itself out statistically. I think you know generally we're we're quite poor at evaluating you know what the impact is statistically uh, just using our intuition. But um, th- that's not to say that that there's there's not an impact. There is, and some of these things are, are very, very tricky. Um, you know the uh, the delve cost, for for instance, um, from the, the last couple of sets, uh, throws our our converted mana cost um, uh, calculations off. So these are these are very complex, you know, situations, and uh, and we're still trying to improve the way that we present the statistics with uh, with every set. Yeah, it, it's really great. I know when I first saw Dash, I was just like, oh, that's brilliant. That's like such a simple, neat mechanic that fits so well and the colors that it does. It's aggressive, it gives you options, but uh, I do I do hope that Wizards continues to give us these challenging mechanics that make analysis hard, because it makes it that much more interesting. I know I've been hearing a lot from people that, not specific cards, but just dash is good. And we've seen that played out in archetype percentages, but just dash is a good mechanic. Yeah, I, I agree. I think dash is the best mechanic in the set, um, both from... You know, a, a strength perspective um, and a uh, and a gameplay perspective. It, it asks you interesting questions. You know, in in terms of what you dash and what you don't dash. Um, I, you know, rebound is is a very simple mechanic. I, I think rebound was not at all pushed in this set. Um, you know, and, and it, it it asks less less of the player in terms of um, uh, of how you uh, how you interact and evaluate the card. Indeed. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my first actual question of my own, instead of piggybacking on the on the dash question. But uh, moving away from the individual card um, percentages for a second and down to the archetype percentages, so part of your analysis, for the people listening who haven't seen it yet, breaks down win percentage by color pairs. And as I saw in a comment that you made, this includes spells cast and lands played, and also mana rocks played. So it will be able to capture basically all the colors that you're trying to play in your deck as long as they leave your hand at some point during the match, not just the game. So what I, what I looked at is I wanted to see ally colors versus enemy colors. Okay, so I, I tallied up all the ally uh, two-color combinations. I ignored one color, three color, four color, five. And I tallied up all the, the enemy color combinations, and I compared them. So what I have here is allied it looks like about 29,000 games were played with ally colors and 9,000 games were played with enemy colors. So that's about a little bit more than three times favoring ally colors. So that makes sense to me because we have a lot of ally colored bombs in the set. The, the mechanics are in ally colors, so there's more synergies between them than in enemy colors. So I would expect it to be played more. But here's the interesting thing. I, did a, I, I used your numbers and I did a weighted average of the win percentages for each of the colors in those groups. And overall, the ally win percentage rate is 51.37, and the enemy is 51.35, literally off by two hundredths of a percent, which I found super interesting. And the reason is you would expect that the enemy colors, if they're being played less, well, isn't that because they're worse or or what? So if, if they have exactly the same win percentage, why is it that it's being played so much less? 
is it people aren't paying attention, or do you have any intuition regarding that, Roly? Look, I, I would. I, what I'd like to do is um, is look at that uh, data and pull out uh, Boris. So, so white red. White red is um, is the strongest uh, color combination, uh, as indicated by the data. It has a win percentage of, of 55.7. So, my suspicion is that it is an outlier that is dragging up the um, uh, the win percentage of the uh, of the non-allied pairs. So the uh, if if we take that out of consideration, I'd I'd like to look at the the averages amongst the others, because we we do see some uh, some poor performances in particular around uh, say black green, um, although you know the the others do kind of hold their own um, in comparison to to the allies. You do get access, of course, in in pack three um, to, uh, to to some fairly strong. Um, multicolor commons that other drafters are uh, are unlikely to to pick up. Um, so that that may have a, a balancing effect as well. Okay, so I agree that I probably should be looking at this more at an individual basis, so we pick up on the outliers as opposed to just trying to lump ally and enemy into two separate but distinct camps. But I think I think part of it is when I'm in my first pack, I kind of want to stay in the ally color because I'm like. There, you know, there are ally rares floating around, and unfortunately, only rares and mythics are um, multicolored in this set. But you're only going to get a shot at one more DTK rare or mythic that you open at least. It can be passed to you, but people don't pass the best stuff usually after you see your first one in your first pack. So I feel like when you're in that first pack, you know, halfway through it, you're trying to say, oh, I want to be in ally colors in case I open a rare. But really, what are the odds that you're going to open a multicolored rare, and it's going to be in exactly that? ally color combination that you wanted. So I feel like there's a little bit of an aversion to enemy colors, even red and white, which is quite good. I feel like there might be some people who are like, I'm trying to stick to ally because the set is ally, when really, you know, only rares and mythics are multicolored. Most of the time, it's not even going to matter. And you can kind of be in whatever color combination is most open. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. I think, the again, the most important thing that, that you can do in, in this draft format is be drafting open colours. Um, so, you know, draft the best colours for your seat because the synergy factor in this set is quite low other than, you know, perhaps the, the very overdrafted uh, uh, blue-black exploit deck. Um, really what you're doing is, is focusing on, um, on core, you know, basic magic, uh, draft a curve, draft open colors, you know, draft the right number of creatures and the right number of spells. You know, there's, there's nothing funky going on in this set. You're, uh, you're much better off being in the, uh, in, in open colors than forcing, um, allied colors in the hope of opening a, a bomb or getting past a bomb in your, um, your colors in pack two. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so the next one I have, unless you want to add anything to that, is, um, it's a, it's a simple question we got over Twitter, and someone was asking what the date range is for these 30,000 games. Do you know roughly what the date range this was collected over? Yeah, so it's, um, uh, it's tailored for after the, uh, after the pre-release. Usually I let um, the release events run for a week before starting to collect data, um, and that, that'll be the first release of, um, uh, of the data on the site. Usually then we'll do another one, uh, probably in, uh, in a month or so's time, after people have had the uh, the opportunity to to draft the set for a while and uh, and things have settled down, surprisingly, we don't find that 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 much changes. Certainly, in terms of the um, 
the card win percentages. Um, we see some of the draft archetypes changing um, sometimes, but uh, uh, but a lot of the the card wins are remarkably similar from that that first kind of release week on uh, on MTGO all the way to the end. The um, the only exception is uh, is when when you get a, a kind of breakout card or a breakout archetype um, halfway through a format, something like Spider Spawning um, from uh, from Innistrad. Then you'll see a, a dramatic change, but uh, but I don't expect things to change that much for this set. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting to hear because that's what I would I would I would hopefully I would have expected before you tell me because a card is a card; it's always going to have the same text on it. But what matters is the people next to you in the draft. What do they think? And if all of the pros have been saying, you know, this color combination is great, guess what? It's going to start to become overdrafted. So you'll see the game number drift up, and either people are going to have learned more about that color combination, so the win percentage may also drift up if people know how to play it now, or it may drift down due to being overdrafted. So instead of, you know, wildly different card evaluations, what you actually want to do is just continue to play your seat, you know? Make sure you know what's open to your right and to your left, and try to get into a color combination where you can pick up the best cards available to you. Because if you, even if blue-black is far and away the best color, if someone's drafting it on your left and on your right, it doesn't matter how good the cards in the archetype are, because you're not going to get any of the cards in the archetype. You're going to get, you know, you know, draft fodder, basically. Uh, and I, I think one of the things that, uh, that, that data like this um, uh, shows you or should reassure you about is, you know, all of this noise is uh, about green being the, uh, the the worst color in the in the set. Um, it's it's certainly the the least drafted. It's um, uh, it's underdrafted, but it's not any less strong than the other colors. So I don't think that you should go into a draft being afraid of drafting green. Um, certainly in the uh, in the current meta, if if you see a, a large number of people you know shift over and uh, uh, and maybe green isn't as deep, uh, it becomes a, a worse color choice for you. But I don't think that you should necessarily go into a draft, um, you know, tomorrow and actively try to avoid green. There's there's nothing in the numbers to, to indicate that that, that is uh, going to be a positive strategy for you. So moving on to the next question, um, Rolly, is this data collected from eight fours, four three two two, Swiss, or some combination? At the moment, I uh, I do everything. So uh, originally, I um, uh, I collected only eight fours data. Uh, then I moved to uh, to eight fours plus Swiss. Now it's now I record everything basically, um, and it's it's really to give a view of uh, a representation of the meta basically. So this is this is what you're going to face on on MTGO. There's a there's a reasonable argument, particularly for the the card win percentages, um, just to use eight four data. Um, and, and maybe that's something that, uh, that that we would look at in the in the future, particularly if people are, are going to be using the resource, not not simply as a, a kind of informational tool around, you know, th- this is the statistical reality, but if they're if they're really looking at the data to to as an aid to their card evaluations, um, it uh, it may be worthwhile kind of just uh, just using eight fours, particularly for the cards. Okay, excellent. Because one thing, I wanted to ask that, because one thing that I tend to assume, or I, I used to at least when I looked at this data, is I'd be looking at a mediocre or bad card, that, something that pros have deemed unplayable and rarely shows up in decks. And you could see a bad win percentage, and you tend to think, oh, that's, that's not the card's fault. 
that card is appealing to newer players who don't know what they're doing. And that's part of the reason why the card is so low. Like, sure, it's bad, and maybe it's even below 50% win average, but it shouldn't be that bad. But then I went through and I looked at some of the number of times the a unique card has been played. Um, and so here's two cards. Now, these are both from Fate Reforged, keep in mind, which you only open one pack of as compared to two. But I was looking at this, and in all of this draft data, we have ten Dark Deals being played. Ten. One zero. And eight Neutralizing Blasts. Okay? These are cards that you should rarely be playing. Maybe Dark Deal if you manage to pick up three Gurmag Anglers and, I don't know, some sort of thing that gets cards out of your yards. Uh, and Neutralizing bass, Blast if your opponent plays, like, three multicolored bombs. So you shouldn't be casting these cards often. However, they are cards that conceivably a new player could put into their deck. And just these little itty-bitty tiny numbers among 30,000 games are indicative to me that most people have some semblance of what they're doing. And you can't write off a bad card's poor win percentage to, oh, this was probably a player who just started the format and wasn't sure about the card. I think it's actually, these are pretty trustworthy, and you can't kind of ascribe it to say, oh, you know, poor or inexperienced players play this card, and that's the reason behind its win percentage. Do you have uh, any idea about I, that, Rolly? Yeah, I'd, I, prob- I I'd, I'd probably be one of those players. <laughs> 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 it's called um, brewing, guys. It's called brewing. Yeah. Uh, well, well, it's actually it's actually good that you brought up. I I was kind of just I know you were kind of in your flow, uh, Jake, and you know largely me and Richard ta- kind of taking back seats here. But uh, it's good that you brought up new players, and I brought this up last time to Rolly too. So it's good to have your your insight on this, uh, Jake. So you know it's it's good to have all these numbers. It's good to have all these win percentages. It's good to see the archetypes and all that, but you're right. There are some some cards in there that you did mention that maybe you know a, a pro deems bad or you know something that you shouldn't just draft, but a new player does draft them. So for a scrub like me who's really horrible at, at limited, um, you know, and again I pose this to you, Roly. So I'm not just gonna okay. So I'm interested in going to my Friday Night Magic and going to draft this format. I'm not just gonna run, you know, look at this and say, oh, uh, you know, Boros or Rakdos are the best two colors, then go to, uh, you know, all the best cards and say, I'm just going to draft every single card I see at the top of this list that's either white or red, because I'd probably lose, right? Uh, So what specifically, you know, and you were bringing this up, Jake, about newer players, um, how can they see, you know, past these numbers a little bit? Um, you know, they, they do see a few cards up there that are going to help them win a, a draft, but, you know, they're not going to just go down the list and start drafting the highest percentage uh, win rate cards and expect to do well. Uh, Roly, do you want to take this one first? Sure. This this is not for new players. So <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that, is, that is the simplest uh, explanation. So, Damn it. So this is... <laughs> Sorry. If if you if you're uh, after that kind of thing, then, then I recommend you know the the limited resources guys do a do a great sort of podcast on uh, on card evaluation. You know you can see Channel Five or Star City Games. They all publish their their pick lists um, in a in a much friendlier, uh, more accessible uh, way of um, uh, of getting the the sense of uh, the power of a card. What this is is for people that that already have uh, a good 
sort of understanding of, uh, of the format, and then looking to supplement that with, um, uh, with, with data that, um, that perhaps specifically cards that they don't always get to play. I think, you know, cards like Illusory Games, um, which is uh, two, two blue, uh, three colourless, uh, take control of, uh, of target creature. Whenever a creature from your opponent enters the board, uh, move in China, uh, illusory gains onto it. It's a mind control effect, which is traditionally is extremely powerful in, uh, in limited, but it has this strange clause around, uh, shifting, um, over to, to every new creature that they, they cast. I think it's a really hard card to evaluate just on paper. You know, when, when the, when the set first comes out and you, you see these, these ratings from, uh, from pros, um, I think that, that that's the type of card that is most likely to be misevaluated in um, uh, in those sort of spoiler analyses. So that's when I'd be looking, you know, as a as a player that that kind of plays a lot of um, of draft, but may not see illusory gains either, you know, in my deck or, or in play that often. Uh, where I'd be looking back to the spreadsheet and uh, and just validating, well, when it's cast. How often does it win you the game? And it turns out quite often. It's a it's a good card, and, and it uh, I think both the numbers and uh, and playing the card show that um, that this clause around shifting to to every creature they cast um, is is not that big an impact, or at least it's it's outweighed by the um, by the very powerful effect that you get from it. Very good. So uh, yeah, Jay, did you want to chime in on that as well? Uh, just a short note, if you're in red-black, which 14.08% of the field is, according to this analysis, dash your creature out, it gets rid of illusory gains, just pro tip. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you're the one with the illusory gains, side that out after game one. Yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, That's so one of those that... cards, like you said, it's so hard to evaluate. You're like, okay, so I, I get their good creature, but then they play a bad one, but then they play a good one, and then all of a sudden you actually try it in a draft, and someone dashes it against you, and your illusory gains falls off, and you're like, oh, that too. That's another thing I need to remember about it. It's, it's got a lot of moving parts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, that's good that you kind of highlighted that. So it's good because if people didn't listen to the previous one, uh, you, you post these, li- uh, these numbers up every single draft uh, environment, so you can always find them on the website. But, you know, it it's good to quantify this information right here on the cast because uh, for someone that like me, you know, they're not going to go, you know, this is for more experienced drafters uh, and not for, you know, someone to just go, Oh, I want to go to FNM. Like what are the best cards? What are the best, what's the best deck to draft? Oh, I'll just go look at this, go draft the best cards that have best win percentages. And I'm going to go, you know, stop my FNM next week. Yeah. There, there, look, there are some mats like that, where uh, where there's a particular archetype or a particular set of cards that are just by far and away the best thing to be doing. You know, they're, they're formats in which you want to force, um, and and the data will show that, right? So so there's there are formats in, in which you can probably just look at the numbers and uh, and run them top to bottom uh, and and do exactly what they tell you to do. This is not one of those formats. You know, th- this is. Uh, this is a fairly you know, standard meat and potatoes format that uh, that if you're a newer player, newer player, you're um, 
you're much better off, you know, focusing on your uh, on your draft fundamentals, uh, identifying what colours are open on your seat, um, and starting to to develop your own inherent sense of uh, of card evaluation. Uh, that, that that's going to be a more worthwhile um, use of your time in the beginning than uh, than poring over the, uh, the the numbers. Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, so fire away, Jake. Um, I'm going to give the floor back to you. All right, cool. So moving on, uh, I looked at cards. So I was trying to get a sense, uh, back to the actual card evaluations as opposed to archetypes. I was trying to get a sense of cards that were overplayed and that were underplayed. Um, so overplayed, I kind of defined as, um, compared to other cards and their rarity, uh, they tended to see more games played. And I tried to ignore um, dash and rebound because of the... We still had that question lingering. I wasn't sure, you know, quite how we counted those. And I see now that it probably would have been fine to include them. But overplayed, they were they were played more than other cards in their rarity. However, their win percentage is under 50%. And underplayed, I, I kind of looked at, I tried to look at cards that were played less than other cards in their rarity. However, they had win percentages over 50%. Are we good so far, Rolly, or am I looking at this data completely wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I do exactly right, cool. the same thing. It's one of the first things. So that, I know uh, that I, I know you already specifically mentioned. Uh, I saw on your post on Reddit that Ojatai's Breath is the most overdrafted comment. So that that does have um, a little bit of a problem with it because, as we were saying before, cards that are, can be cast defensively tend to do worse because you cast them when you're losing. And Ojatai's Breath, it can be cast offensively. You know, tap down a creature so it can't block, or it can be used defensively tap down a creature so it can't attack, or, you know, both, depending on if you're in a racing-type situation. Um, so that that's that's one thing. However, the other two that I saw that were also kind of near the same type of numbers as Ojatai's Breath were Champion of a Ration, and this one was only 41%, this next one, 41% win rate in games cast, reduce in stature, which I think is something that a lot of people have already been coming around to on their own. How do you like reduce in stature as a card, Rolly? Yeah, so it, it does suffer from um, uh, the same sort of bias that, uh, that that a lot of these reactive cards have uh, in, in relation to that tends to get cast more often when you're losing. But even in comparison to to, to those other cards, you know, your um, uh, those sort of you know uh, sandblast effects, it's it's the lowest of the low. So I would I would be only looking to include this uh, card if I'm desperate for removal. If I have any other of the, the sort of conditional options, they're probably going to be better for me. Moving on to the uncommons, using the same criteria as before for saying overdrafted or underdrafted, two overdrafted cards at uncommon that I saw were Circle of Elders and Echoes of the Kindred. Circle, I, I'm not really too surprised by. It's a four mana, two four. The mana ability generally isn't that relevant uh, whenever you get to eight eight power on the board, but uh, one I was more interested by was Echoes of the Kintry. I know I've tried to make that card work, and there's been a game or two when it's just been absolutely incredible, but I think the format's just too fast for it. Have you had any personal experience with the card? I haven't, no. Um, I think I think that uh, that your analysis is, is probably accurate, though. Um, I, I think that this is a format that I want to be attacking in, and, uh, and I, I don't think it has a natural home, you know, White in particular uh, in this uh, set is an aggressive color, um, so so my guess is that uh, that the format is just too fast for it. 
um, and that, uh, that there's not a deck that it naturally fits into. All right, cool. Um, so here's a really interesting card. An underdrafted, supposedly underdrafted uncommon, is what I have at Sage's Reverie, which is the aura card that cantrips for every aura that you have in play when it enters the battlefield and gives plus one, plus one for every aura that you have in play. It's sitting on a win percentage right now. Let me let me check this out. I think it's at 54%. I, I, apparently someone out there is going deep with, like, multiple rune marks and Sage's Reverie and apparently doing it. I don't, I don't know if that's a deck. Have I just been, like, out of the loop? Is that something that's happening? Uh, no, I don't think it's something that's happening, but it could be. I mean, it's it's clearly a high-variance card. Um, it's it's extraordinarily powerful uh, if it works, and we see this for, for quite a lot of things, Auras in particular. Um... I've, I've often kind of wondered if, uh, if with removal being so bad in, uh, in limited sets, whether our old evaluation of, of auras and, uh, you know, permanent pump effects. So Dromoka's Gift is another really high win percentage uncommon, um, uh, that adds, uh, four counters at, uh, instant speed. Whether our old idea of, of auras and, uh, and these um, permanent counters being really poor because it opens you up for a two for one. Well, when your when your removal is costing five, um, and and it's is sometimes conditional on top of that. Um, I think that, that there may be uh, a reasonable argument to to reevaluate some of these um, some of these high variance cards when they offer you enough. So, so Reverie, you know, is a is a good good example where you know it's it's probably not as terrible as um, uh, as you might think at first glance, uh, particularly if uh, if you're drafting a deck around it. I mean, it doesn't have enough of a payoff on its own for me to want to go into this archetype, but certainly I think that. Uh, you know, just because you have a Sage's Reverie in your deck um, doesn't mean that you've you've necessarily drafted something that's gone off the rails. Yeah, I, I, I think at first I was looking at it and I was saying, well, you have to have a deck built around this because at the worst case, you only draw one card and give plus one, plus one, which is not a great deal for four mana. However, it may also be a victim of what I talked about at the beginning, which is what it says about uh, the restriction of casting the card. And it could just say, well, your opponent is tapped out, which means they probably aren't holding up instant speed removal for your creature, and you have a creature that you're able to cast this on. So, you know, maybe it's not that people are out there drawing three and four cards off of this. It's just, you know, it's it's a randomly valuable card. Uh, and, it you know, the game count isn't that high, so I don't think we should take anything super away from this. It was just an interesting point. Yeah, look, I, I look for these sorts of cards. You know, cards that... Um uh, that are, are better than what they appear, um, and uh, and of course you can't just look at the number and say, aha, I found a, a new archetype that everybody's missing. Um, but it, it can lead you to, to kind of look at your games and see where these cards might be um, might be better than what you initially evaluated them at. Also, an additional thing it might be saying is it might just be saying that white was open and you're the guy who managed to pick up two pacifisms or three pacifisms in the first two packs. And so this yep. part is just nuts. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
then it's yeah, not I mean, saying anything about the card. It's just saying thing about the other cards in your deck. You, you don't need too much, right? Uh, one one other aura on the battlefield, and you're getting a, a pretty good deal. You know, you get right. two cards back and uh, and plus two plus two. Uh, you know, all of that said, a fifty-four percent win rate is is nothing to you know jump up and down about. Um, but uh, but it is something where if you if you're really you know grasping for playables, um, you've you've got a couple of pacifisms, or, or maybe you've got a ruined mark, um, and you you see kind of sage's reverie that you you picked up you know, last out of the, the pack, you know, it, it, it may not be your worst option. Okay, cool. Uh, so the next thing is, I was looking at the sideboard cards. So the sideboard cards I'm talking about are five specific uncommons that you guys probably know about, uh, one in each color that specifically hoses their two enemy colors. So it's Surge of Righteousness, Encase and Ice, Self-Inflicted Wound, Rending Volley, Display of Dominance. So I was curious, I was saying, okay, well, if you've brought in this sideboard card, these are all very efficient whenever you have a target for them. You can't main deck them, basically, ever. If you do, you probably are doing something wrong, and you should be playing a basic land instead. However, if you, if you bring them out of the sideboard, the idea is they should be doing pretty good for you, right? Well, I was looking at them, and in case an ice, self-inflicted wound, running volley, all have above 51%, all have above 50% win conditions. They're all doing pretty good. But Surge of Righteousness, that's one in a white, Instant destroy target, I think it's attacking black or red creature, you gain two life. It's sitting at 46%. And I know that's not that far off from 50%, but it's good against black red attackers, it's good against dash, it's in a color that's not horrible. Am I, is this just variance, or do you think I'm missing something here about Surge of Righteousness not being like a really, really great kill shot? I think uh, it probably suffers from the, the exact same problem as the, uh, the bolster card that we were talking about, the bolster enchantment. It's um, white is an aggressive color. It wants to be attacking. Um, you know the the two mana uh, restrictiveness um, on it doesn't make it much better than a than a a sand, a sand blast. Um, I think white just has white in particular has better options, more flexible options for um, uh, for that slot. You know the 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 Blue one obviously is uh, is fantastic, and that the, there's not there's not an easy replacement. You know, um, if uh, if reducing stature is your uh, your best equivalent, then uh, then encasing ice is a, a huge improvement uh, above that. Um, I, I think probably uh, probably less so for the white one. It's um, it's more restrictive, and there are better options in white already. Okay, that, that's good to know. I think I need to adjust my opinion of that card a little bit. I think this is actually a case where the damage is going to directly change that. Because I think that in the past, I'd be likely to bring it in against just black decks, like black and something else, or red and something else. And that actually lowers the card, because then you're just like, you draw it and you're like, oh, I need to get this out of my hand, I need to cast it. And so you'll get rid of like a mediocre black or red creature and it'll be meh. Where it'll actually be really good against you know, black and red, like exactly the dash deck, when you get your choice of, like, get their best creature with it, as opposed to just, oh, I drew my sideboard card, I need to cast it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, if if you can get their entire deck, um, then, then that's obviously much less conditional. Um, if, uh, if, it's, if it's restricted to just one of their colors, um, I think, you know, it, it's just not as, uh, as impactful, the two life possibly doesn't mean anything to you. Um, 
So if certainly if if your opponent is black red, I would have no hesitation bringing it in. Um, if it's if it's only one color, well, if they're heavy, but you know you do you do pay a cost for for that condition uh, that that condition, um, and you know again it must be attacking and blocking. So so you, you've already then got a baseline condition having a color condition on top just you know might put that under the um, uh, under the playability area. All right, excellent. I definitely learned something with that card. Um, so the last thing is first a quick question, which is. Um, Whenever you count number of turns an average games takes, do you include games that end in concessions or just ones that actually end in the um, the program de- declaring that there's a winner? No, concessions are included. In fact, the majority of games end in concessions. That makes sense because people want to. I often I don't I often don't see why people concede whenever someone's even attacking for lethal. Because what if you miscounted? Just just let the your life total go to zero. Are you like, does it hurt you that much inside when you see your life total drop to zero or a minus number? I'm just like, yeah, sure. Kill me. That's fine. I'm going to make you do it because the one time out of a million that I miscounted and you're not attacking for lethal. Guess what? I'm going to get another turn. Yeah, I would agree with that. F6 costs you nothing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Particularly on uh, MTGO. So going along with that, I was wondering, um, I think that number of turns is a really great statistic for comparing at a quick glance, the speed of a format to another. Uh, is there also a way for your program to look at the number of cards left in somebody's hand when a game is over? Yes. So the uh, the cards in hand is a statistic that is um, that is shown on the screen. Uh, so so we could do uh, uh, an analysis of, of how many cards in hand. Okay. So this was just a thought, and I, I, it might be less useful than number of turns. But I was just thinking, uh, it's an alternate measure or an additional measure of the speed of the format, how many cards does the player have in hand when they lose most of the time? Now, this this is probably a problem. I, I say it out loud, and then all of a sudden I'm like, Jake, you're an idiot. Why are you even suggesting this? Because if you're light on lands, obviously you're going to concede when you have eight cards in hand sometimes, you know, so you don't reveal extra cards from discarding or whatever. You're just frustrated with the game. I was thinking more like your opponent is really fast and you only got to deploy however many threats out of your hand before you die. But I guess that would need a distinction there. So you're not counting, you know, high card counts from, you know, conceding due to color screw or land screw. Yep, no, that, that does make sense. And it's it's something that, um, uh, that I've thought about uh, quite a bit as well in terms of trying to find metrics that... Um, uh, that correlate more closely to our um, subjective experience of, of these things. Obviously, there's no general community consensus as to what um, what the definition of a fast format is or a or a slow format. You know, that's that's not defined statistically within the community. We just have a sense of, well, this is for uh, faster, uh, that's less fast. Um, the average number of turns is okay at, um, uh, at at kind of standing in for uh, uh, for that sense of a speed of a format. I've actually been playing with the idea that uh, win percentage on the play, so the advantage that you get from being on the play is a much better correlate to your um, your subjective sense of the speed. So if you look at say um, uh, say constructed formats. Um, uh, looking at uh, say modern or uh, 
or standard. They're undoubtedly faster formats than um, uh, than draft. You see win percentages on the play for for those two sitting around the the 54% um, uh, rate. You you see VMA, which was also a, a very fast format, uh, sitting around 53% uh, win on the play. So that's that's by far the biggest. Um, uh, impact from from being on the play in a in a draft format. So I'm I'm completely open to the idea that um, that there are other metrics that we could use to better describe these um, uh, these subjective measures that we have for, for things like speed or, uh, or, or or other things that don't have you know lockdown uh, statistical equivalents. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. I'm not sure I actually would have um, come up with that on my own in any reasonable length of time to look at win percentage on the play as a measure of format speed over number of turns. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, that was the last of my questions. Um, I just want to say thank you to Roly for you know making this program and compiling this data. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite resources to go to when it's out for a new set. I Obviously, it's not the end-all, be-all, but you learn a lot of really interesting things from perusing this data. And I know it's really helpful to me. Uh, if, if there are any questions you wished we had asked about the data and we didn't, and you want to ask about them, or if uh, Richard or, I'm sorry, Richard. <laughs> Chaz. <laughs> Richard or Chaz, thank you. I yeah. kept on seeing your screen name instead of your first name. In my head. <laughs> if Richard or Chaz have any questions, they can absolutely go ahead, but that, that's it for me. Richard, uh, we haven't chimed in a, a lot. Uh, we kind of just let Jake and Roly explain everything for, for listeners. Um, no, yeah, the, the, this is a really good tool and, uh, it may not be a really good tool for someone like me who's not very good at drafting, but it's still interesting to see the numbers and, and the forethought that goes, you know, behind what people are playing in the format and, uh, you know, why specific cards are doing what they do in terms of win percentages uh, and the like. But, um, yeah, if you have more questions, you can, uh, just tag the hashtag MTG Fishmail. We'll, we'll answer it. Uh, Jake is also browsing that, that hashtag as well. And, uh, he's kind of our go-to guy as well as Roly, uh, for, for limited type stuff. But you can send any kind of, any kind of questions over there. Um, I don't have any questions. Do you have anything to chime in on, uh, Richard? No, I've just been sitting here looking pretty, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, I, I've talked to really a lot about the data, so I don't have any questions for him. So, you know, we just wanted to open the floor for discussion. Um, but, you know, like Jake said, you know, it's a great service to the community that Rolly's doing with this data. And, you know, we're proud to have it on Goldfish. And it's very valuable, right? Like, you know, we, we often have these intuitions about how things play out or how cards work and just having, some statistical data to back that up or to contradict that is uh, very valuable for, you know, a game that's, you know, where chance and randomness, you know, kind of obscures our analysis. I think this is a great tool. So I'd like to thank Roly for this data. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, and, and thank you guys for being on the cast. Uh, Jake, you did a great job for filling in for Seth. Uh, I think his uh, job's in jeopardy, Richard. <laughs> no, I, no, I was really glad to be back. I'm glad you guys invited me back. You probably shouldn't say that too much because I, I might fear for what Seth would do. But uh, <laughs> thank you anyway. I, um, I know Seth actually really wanted to be on this cast. Seth yeah. grinds limited like no man does. So yeah, he, he, he had he a lot really to say, does, but yeah. he couldn't make it today. 
Um, but hopefully yeah. we'll, well, he'll be back next week, so he can add in his thoughts then. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Rolly, Jake, thanks for being on the podcast. Really a pleasure to have you guys on here again. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that wraps things up for this week. Uh, the crew will reconvene uh, with Seth, and uh, that I think that about wraps things up for for the podcast for episode 15. Um, yeah, I'm wearing my shirt, Richard. Just for you, man. That's good. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I'm gonna we do it. We need to do a, a live stream next time, you know. <laughs> yeah, those they, MTG Golfer shirts are comfortable. That's all. Yeah, they're say. they're really right. good. Uh, like I said, they won't be able to actually see it, but you know, I, I, me telling them that it's 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 going on should be enough. <laughs> all right, so uh, that's episode 15, and uh, thanks everyone for stopping in on the MTG Goldfish podcast.